Welcome to this edition of the Technology Pit, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and explores the extraordinary powers of governments and companies. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And today, I'm here again with Caitlin Bishop, who works on our campaigns. The topic for today is immunity passports, and we are fortunate to have a series of guests who will take us through varying aspects of this very complicated and dangerous domain we're about to enter as we continue the struggle against COVID. We all know that we've been locked away, locked down in various ways, in various countries, in various parts of the world. We've been economically inactive, we've been antisocial, and we want to get out. We want to get out into the world, we want to get back to work, we want to be able to travel around the world. And one mechanism, one tool that's being offered to us as the solution is the immunity passport. Caitlin, I was wondering if you can talk us through the definitions of what that means. Um, Okay, so an immunity passport essentially is a a document that's widely accepted to show that you are immune in some sense to COVID in this particular case, meaning you can go out into the world and you shouldn't get it. That comes with about a million caveats. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And well, the reason it makes sense to me is that I managed to find the time, uh, like many, many people have, and I'm wondering how many people who are listening to this podcast have done this, to watch the movie Contagion from, I think it was 2011, where it's essentially describing a world that is, well, our world, world facing a pandemic, more of like a flu-like pandemic that basically kills people within a very short period of time. And Matt Damon who I'm not sure if he's the hero of the movie, but uh, when it comes to immunity, he's certainly the hero in the sense that while his wife is probably patient zero and she dies, uh, he does not. And it's interesting to see him as the character struggle with this in the sense that as he tries to do things, he, he tries to explain to people, hey, I'm immune don't stop me from doing what I'm trying to do. For instance, when everybody is trying to get out of the city um, and eventually they close the borders, when he gets to the board, he says, but I'm not a risk because I am immune. And it's interesting to see that the border police just basically say, I have no idea what that means. Just get back in your car and go home. And uh, as the movie develops and, and it moves towards the vaccination stage and people start getting the vaccine, you see the world scrambling for the vaccine because they know that if they get this vaccine, they get to become unlocked. They get to become economically active, socially active and have what Matt Damon, the hero, had all along. So uh, we can definitely appreciate the the temptation to see immunity passports as the way out of lockdown or out of the pandemic, I guess because we've been here before. We, we, we all heard governments talk about apps the same way a few months ago, but unfortunately now it's a, around immunity. And we're very fortunate to have our colleague, Alex Pilotico-Biont. Um, she's been looking at how the public health community has been approaching the issue of immunity passports and what they're saying. So my my input that I wanted to share with you is to kind of reflect a little bit on the main discussions around immunity passports from the public health and immunology um, sector and, and how they've been looking at this. And like many of the measures proposed by governments and companies since the beginning of the pandemic, immunity passports is yet one of those measures that requires us to look in further detail in terms of of the scientific evidence on which national and global policies on these issues are being developed. So when it comes to immunity passport, while the World Health Organization, the WHO, and scientists across the world are continuously reviewing their positions and their guidance and the evidence also that there is on antibody response to COVID-19, there are still many unknowns about how immunity for this particular coronavirus works. The immunopathology of COVID-19 remains largely unknown. And so many professionals have been very cautious to support the idea of immunity passports 
given that it's too early at the moment to really understand the immunity of this particular virus. And so quite early on at the, the of the pandemic, so at the end of April 2020, the WHO presented a scientific briefing which highlighted some of the main concerns regarding these unknowns, these gaps in knowledge about how COVID-19 worked and questions around immunity. And many of those concerns have now been confirmed by others and various studies uh, have been published since uh, on this topic. And so I wanted to highlight three main concerns highlighted by these different experts um, that we need to take into account when understanding how immunity passports would work, but also the implications they would have in the short term and the long term. The first one is purely on the immunity concept itself. So far, there have been no studies that have evaluated whether the presence of antibodies confers uh, immunity to further infections of this virus in humans. And this is still the position held today by the WHO and immunologists as well. Uh, and for example, the professor Eleanor Riley from University of Edinburgh recently explained in a podcast in The Guardian that we have no idea whether there is a correlation between data around antibodies and the likelihood of getting reinfected. And unfortunately, we won't have solid evidence of this available until people that have already been infected are affected a second time and further tests are done. So that's the first element. The second one, and this is not only uh, linked to COVID, but there's a lack of information about the antibody response to COVID-19, given that there's little scientific research that's been done uh, on the matter, even if there are, as I said, various studies underway, it remains unclear if the presence of antibodies means that people are fully or partially protected from future infections. And the reason why that is, and like I said, this these two points are not only linked to, to COVID-19, but in general to, to different viruses and understanding how viruses impact people, someone, you know, could be seriously ill, and they're likely to have very strong, a strong level of antibodies, but it's unclear how long those would last. Um, so this raises questions as to when people would be tested. Uh, at the moment, they assume they could be a few weeks or months or even a year, but there's no evidence for this for COVID-19 uh, at the moment. The other element is that those that experience mild infections or have those that are asymptomatic would have lower concentration of antibodies. And those would reduce quite rapidly at a steady rate. And so for them, it's also unclear how long they would actually have the antibodies in their system. And then the last point is around the accuracy of, of the testing. When it comes to COVID-19, given that it's a relatively new virus compared to others, there's a need for further validation to determine the accuracy and reliability of the antibody test. And the reason why that's quite problematic is that some of the tests don't pick up all of the positive samples, and that would give you a false negative, or they don't pick up some of the samples that sh or that should be negative, and so you end up having false positives. And so that reduces the accuracy of the test by a few percentages. And so it's really hard to have certainty without doing further tests um, as well. Another element that the WHO has noted that given this is a new type of coronavirus, we don't know how the tests um, are able to distinguish between the COVID-19 coronavirus compared to other human coronaviruses, including four that are common colds that we all experience in our different societies, as well as the Middle East respiratory syndrome MERS and the severe acute respiratory syndrome SARS. And so that's also an additional challenge uh, when it comes to COVID-19 and some of the tests that are being done on which the idea of immunity passports are being founded. And so in terms of like concluding and bringing, you know, summarizing what is the position of, of the sector on this, the WHO and other leaders in immunology maintain the position that Currently, there's not enough evidence about the effectiveness of antibody-mediated immunity to guarantee the accuracy of an immunity passport or what's also called a risk-free certificate. And the reason why they are flagging these concerns is not only from a scientific perspective, but they're also worried that the assumptions that are being made by, by individuals who think they're immune or decisions that are being made by governments uh, in terms of public policy around some of these issues mean that actually it could result in a higher risk of transmissions because 
various decisions could be made as well. Individuals could adopt new behaviors because they assume that they're immune uh, to COVID-19 and they may actually behave in a way that goes against public health advice. So it would be, it would counter some of the other efforts being made because something to remember with COVID-19 and from the beginning, the WHO has been repeating this over and over again is any measures to tackle COVID-19 have to be very comprehensive. And it's just, it's not just one thing. We need to think about mass testing. We need to be thinking about quarantine. We need to be thinking about contact tracing. An immunity passport may become another one of those components, but it can't be the only thing we rely on. So these are some of the main concerns that it's really important when understanding and and when governments are justifying their decisions to implement immunity passports to, to take into account as different governments go towards new measures to ease down different lockdowns and different countries have been subject to either at the national or local level. And in this particular case, the decisions that will be made in relations to immunity passports. And that's a, that's a good segue to actually um, look at how governments are deploying uh, immunity passports or are hoping to, regardless of all the great points that Alex just covered. COVID-19 is a bit of a bastard. Um, It doesn't allow us to do the things that we saw Matt Damon do in the movie, goddammit. But also, it it defies all of our our internal beliefs. Like the number of people we've all spoken to who, you know, they might have had a sniffle a few weeks ago and they said, oh, you know what? I probably have it. I can't wait to get tested so I can get out there and be confident in the world. And what Alex basically said is that, well, that person who does that could actually end up being quite the villain in this play because uh, that person doesn't know that they are actually carrying uh, the virus and transmitting the virus. And so having said all that, Caitlin, can you run us through what some like what is going on around the world around uh, these immunity passports? Well, um, listening to Alex talking about some of the, the concerns the WHO have, one I that really sprung to mind was uh, California have proposed a bill that um, essentially allows for the use of blockchain-based technology to essentially provide to provide immunity passports. Which, given that we're not sure how long immunity lasts, we're not sure of anything really. It seems like putting something like an immunity status on the blockchain, which is designed not to be editable, is uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying completely mad. It's a cluster block by design. <laughs> yeah, um, and it, it, it's 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 uh, policy <laughs> by buzzword because blockchain is shiny and it's fancy and it's cool, except for the fact that as far as anyone can tell, every time anyone tries to use blockchain for anything, um, and for those that don't know, it's depending on who's using the word it's either a fancy excel sheet with a password or it's a very complicated kind of daisy chain of ledgers that can't be go back and be edited that is distributed across lots of different people so it's decentralized but broadly like it's it's useful in some very 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 hyper specific examples but immunity passports seems like the exact time not not to use them (laughs) um there are other more like practical examples but i just thought that one was almost if you'd read the who's advice and then decided to do the exact opposite of everything based on all of the science that they produced you'd end up with a blockchain immunity passport it's a tech bros immunity passport perfect for california yeah exactly while we're on that how about um did i hear something about footballers oh my god so in the uk also famous for excellent decision making the problem (laughs) is not so much with the government creating an immunity passport though it's something they've mentioned it's with the premier league uh the top football league in the uk creating their own immunity passport which would be a, a smartphone qr code that fans would scan at entry to stadiums to let them go watch Premier League games that would be run by the same company that's been doing testing for the cricket teams that are currently playing in the UK, which are the West Indies and the England team. The the idea of a private company running their own testing regime and immunity passport seems A, like a really bad plan. B, I mean, it relies on people having smartphones. And C, like... Again, it falls prey to all of these problems. If I get tested one week and I don't have the virus, does that mean I won't have the virus next week? So if I get tested now and I don't have the virus, because this again is based on not 
even antibody testing. I think it's based on antigen testing, which is whether you do or don't have the virus at this very moment. That's meaningless for next week. It's meaningless for tomorrow. So functionally, I'm not sure what they're trying to achieve. Maybe the idea is that if you manage to get tickets to the finals, you might have enough time to go and try to get the virus in order to then generate the antibodies in order to then get the passport and hopefully not die anywhere along that chain and end up at a football match. I mean, personally, ending up at the football match seems to be the worst part of that equation. <laughs> but I appreciate that it's that's not the case for everyone. But there are there have been equally mad kind of attempts all over the place to start creating immunity passports. Another one of the really really odd ones was there was a system being kind of mooted in West Africa amongst other people by MasterCard, which is connected to a payment system. It's a smartphone vaccine record payment system hybrid thing, which again, some of the stuff just feels like people have their technological ideas and they're cramming immunity passports in because they're in the news and they feel relevant. And this always has ended very well whenever they've done something like that. And that's a good moment for us to move to our next guest, who is Maria Paz Canales, who's joining us from Chile, actually. She works at Derechos Digitales, one of our favorite partner organizations, and she's had to deal with the issue of immunity passports head on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the issue about immunity passport, it, it's something that obviously has uh, arrived as a discussion that, that is very intensive in, the, in this moment of the pandemic, in which there are a lot of thought that is being given even to the measure that should be taken by countries in order to start to release some of the uh, more strict measures of confinement that were adopted or are still being adopted in, in many countries for uh, doing a, a proper handling of the pandemic. So even if this topic hadn't advanced too much in the public discussion or in the implementation, is an issue that probably will get the, the most traction and attention for the future because it's particularly linked with uh, the question about how we can find ways to make secure that people can start to have it again, the public spaces or, or the spaces in which there is possibility of have big agglomeration of people. So in that sense, the first things that we need to consider regarding the, um, the immunity passport discussion is the level of uncertainty that still exists in, in scientific terms about the, the possibility to determine with a, with, with a degree of certainty the existence of that immunity. And there are no solid scientific conclusions about the determination of immunity. So the first challenge that really exists in this moment for thinking about e immunity passport is that the, the very fact of immunity is an open question at this moment. So that's the first challenge, which is quite different with the previous experience that humanity had regarding the use of immunity passport. Immunity passport are not something new that is being created or thought in this particular pandemic. Immunity passport are part of the regular uh, process of control of infectious disease around the world, but usually they are linked to vaccination programs that are being implemented at international level in which the, the vaccine development provide a degree of certainty of the level of immunity. So if you have been vaccinated of a specific contagious disease and you have your yellow passport, immunity passport, that credit that you have been vaccinated, in some way there's a degree of certainty that you can offer that you will not be at risk of contracting or spreading this infectious disease. And none of those variables, as I am explaining now, are present in the case of coronavirus. We don't have certainty about the immunity. We don't have certainty. Uh, there's no vaccine. So there is no certainty about how to uh, artificially produce that immunity. And until we have those factors figured out, my opinion, and maybe not relevant my opinion, but the World Health Organization opinion is that it's not safe and it's not appropriate to talk about immunity passport. For, for this particular issue. So that's from the more like factual base of analysis of the immunity passport. But then uh, we have to consider also what 
could be the, the social impacts of operating in this field without those uh, certainties that I was referring. And, and those are very, very, very severe consequences for the exercise of rights of people around the world. And why is that? It's because it's not just a matter of like making a false determination about the level of, of immunity, but it's also how the requirement of having one of these immunities passport to allow the exercise of rights of participating in the public space or in the civic life could determine an unfair setting for the exercise of rights of people and a level of control from uh, governments uh, or, or any kind of institution that implement this kind of passport in the ability of exercise of rights that it doesn't have any uh, similar equivalent in the history of humanity. And, and this is particularly problematic in contexts like the one that I represent. Uh, I, I, as Gus was mentioning, I am an expert coming from Latin America. I am based in Chile, but I work regionally in all Latin America. And the reality, the social and political reality of our countries in the region shows that this can be very problematic in terms of having unintended consequences, but also intended consequences regarding the way in which the this instrument could be used to uh, limit the possibility of a specific vulnerable groups or activist groups to be part of discussions and conversation and exercise, for example, the right to protest or, or have free movement or different uh, elements of exercise of social and economic rights, for example, the access to opportunities of work or um, to have access to health benefits or, or social welfare benefits. All those could be conditioned for the fact of holding one of these immunity passports and could have consequences that further marginalize to the groups that are more vulnerable and the ones that probably need more help and support in these difficult times of pandemic that are not only have had the health consequences, but also the economic consequences, because many of the persons that are not able in this moment to go out and, and occupy the public space are prevented to have any kind of form of income. So just to summarize that last point, there, there is a huge risk that the deployment of this immunity passport will lead to the risk that the most vulnerable population will have a, an incentive for being infected and being sick in order to get after one of these immunity passports and in that way to secure the possibility to have access to this social interaction that will not be allowed for people that will not hold one of these immunity passports. And we think that that's a total dystopian result of, of, of a policy of this type and, and we should be very careful to prevent and we are trying to do uh, our best as advocacy organization to, to make aware uh, to anyone, uh, any government, particularly in my region, that it's evaluating to work in this kind of instrument, the risk uh, that this can have for the exercise of rights of the population at large. Yeah, if I, if I can just pick up, because you work all across Latin America, have you seen policies and policy discussions around immunity passports? And I was wondering, to what degree has there been an inequality in, in the deployment of testing, whether it's testing to see if you have the virus or testing to see if you had the virus? And if immunity passports become the, the system through which inequality is again perpetrated. Definitely. I mean, it's all the strategies that are deployed in this pandemic context have this uh, synergy result that lead to reinforce mutually <laughs> the inequalities uh, of, of the implementation of the policies, or we could try to assign them the other way around in, in order to uh, try to fix those inequalities or at least address them in a, in a more reasonable way. And I think that you currently pointed out that the, the, the problem, in, in particular in my region, about the deployment of test capacity had been a very relevant issue. In particular, for example, in Chile, there, there has been a, a very big effort from the government to massively deploy the testing capability and they free of charge uh, the testing for the people that have symptoms of the disease. 
but not for the people that is asymptomatic. So in Chile, there is kind of a two-tier system. If you, if you are suspected to have the coronavirus, but you cannot show that you have any symptoms or you cannot show that you have had directed contact with uh, someone that was already diagnosed, you are not qualifying for getting the free uh, testing. You have to pay for your test. And this creates, of course, a huge inequality because for people that have lower incomes and less possibilities to pay by themselves for this testing, it will be an additional barrier that they should have to overcome in order to get those immunity passports. And probably the incentive, the economic incentive, will be to them to do that because otherwise they will end in this vicious circle of if they don't have the immunity passport, they will not be willing to go back to the, to the work. And, and at the end, this is totally a reinforcement of the inequalities. They, they, they leave a majority of also the population in Latin America, they work in the informal sector, not in the, in the formal sector of uh, employment. So that makes also a huge difference in terms of the risk uh, that this strategy can result in, in increasing the, that inequality because those are the ones that they don't have paid leave or they don't have uh, health insurance coverage. So it, it will reinforce all the, uh, that situation of vulnerability that they have lived uh, for, the, for the past years and it's increasingly deepened by this pandemic. And, and going back to the question of the particular deployment of these strategies in the region, the, the first country probably around the world that started to talk about immunity passport in April was precisely Chile. It was documented around the globe by the press that we were discussing and, and the government was initially very determined to issue a digital immunity passport. They continue with their plan of implementation of this immunity passport during whole April. And, and at the end of May, when exactly one day before they supposed to release the uh, initiative of the immunity passport, they suddenly stopped the development of this uh, implementation. They gave as an argument for stopping the program, saying that they, they have heard what the World Health Organization have said about the concerns of the implementation uh, of this immunity passport that we just talked a few minutes ago. And also that they have heard different groups that were like raising the issue of the possibility of discrimination that will be reinforced by the deployment of this type of immunity passport. They, they are not saying that definitely they, they will stop any implementation of this. They, they, they say that they are waiting for the science to provide more certainty about what will be the proper condition to identify and, and define in a more precise way when the immunity happened. And they, they say that at that moment they will reactivate the strategy of implementation of the immunity passport, which is also a bit problematic, it's like move the, the, the problem for the future, but it, it doesn't solve it because even if we have the scientific certainty part solved, we still believe that uh, the issues regarding the unfair impact in the exercise of right will remain. And, and, and that is why, in general, even if we had better uh, scientific uh, certainty about the immunity condition, we don't think that this will be an, a strategy that will be compatible with, with the respect of the, of the different human rights in place. I, I, that's so incredibly well put. What, what you're saying is that this is a live disease like it is in our societies this isn't a, a a matter of trying to prevent the rise of something it's in action and so long as it's in action that is the virus is around and being shared and so long as there's inequalities in the societies that we have and and the ones that you're describing in latin america particularly around uh employment are just so stark that an immunity passport is too dangerous a concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I think that, that that's the fundamental issue. Like, and I think that in this, uh, of course, that the novelty of this disease and the global dimension of this situation that we 
having confronted never in the story of humanity make people to think that uh, we can take this kind of desperate measures to to try to uh, make the situation a bit more normal in the in the short future but think what will be the long term impact in the exercise of rights at the individual level so how this will directly impact the the life or the possibility of having a livelihood for for an individual that now it's in a very desperate situation after many months of not having the ability to gain an income etc but also as societies in terms of like uh, deciding who has the right to freely circulate, uh, to participate in public demonstration, which are, are things that in this particular moment of history are also very relevant. And we have seen even uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement from the US that is spread quickly uh, at the global level that there is a need also to have into consideration that we should be careful of course that that don't imply that we would we will not take the measure for controlling the pandemic but the thing is that the measure that we should control for the pandemic should provide increasingly in the process of releasing of some of these more strict confinement measure they should provide space for provide opportunity for people to exercise their rights and make their their very fair demands in other aspects. And with all the implementation of these kind of technologies of immunity passport, either digital or physical ones, what we will be doing is to apply in a level of control in the society that it's kind of incompatible with that exercise of civil liberties. Thank you so much for that contribution. This was excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Maria Paz. Now we're very fortunate to have Tom Fisher join us, who leads our work on digital identity. And essentially, he has to answer the question, can any of this be done safely and securely? Um, whether it can be is perhaps an open question. Whether it will be with the current digital identity industry as it stands I'd say the answer to that is no. It's it's a challenging area, the area of immunity passports for the digital identity industry. In many ways, this was a fantastic, amazing opportunity for digital identity because we suddenly face a situation where we might need to have this verifiable piece of information about ourselves that we have the state of immunity, if indeed the evidence for that becomes more clear. But rather than proving itself to be that kind of amazing opportunity there, it really just highlights some of the weaknesses and issues of what we've been seeing from the industry of the startups, the companies developing various kind of projects, the proponents, the organizations pushing for it, the alliances and groups of people who are working on these on these uh, issues. Because I think it's I think it's really important to recognize that there's the great societal risks and harms that can emerge from the misuse of this type of immunity passport. You know, the deep discriminations and the um, exclusions that can emerge there from, from, for example, if your employer is demanding that proof of your status, will that then put your job at risk? Will you be able to even travel to work because of your status? What if the police have powers to check whether you have this immunity passport or not. All of these are extremely challenging situations. Um, And we can see more broadly from the work that Privacy International has been doing and our partner organizations and other organizations around the world on um, ID more generally, we see great, um, great sets of exclusions and lack of access as a result. We see that people can't get hold of the necessary documentation. And then we see the effect and harms that emerge from that when they're excluded so much of kind of formal society. So we have to look and learn from these kind of lessons as to see what the kind of risks are that emerge from these sets of immunity passports. And so the current state of the digital identity industry as it stands and we see various sets of ideas and principles which are running through it, 
notions surrounding, say, consent, in which um, you're basically able to share these pieces of information with other people if you give your consent. Now, the challenge there becomes it doesn't really reflect the reality of what of the situation when you're asked to either show your ID or show you an immunity passport or any of these things. There's a huge power imbalance in those relationships. If your employer, your landlord, the police, security services, you know, even even the doorman at a at a bar or nightclub, they are they're in an extraordinarily powerful position over you and can make these demands and say, okay, you're not coming to work, you're you're you've got to get off the streets, you're not travelling on this train unless you show this um, show this credential, and then basing that kind of interaction on a notion like um, consent, when they have such power over you, this is not going to be genuine consent, genuine agreement to share with them your um, your immunity status. So if, like many of the digital identity solutions we see emerging, from them we, we, we see these based on, sometimes purely on the, quote, consent, unquote, of the individual. And I think what the immunity passport example shows is the great harms that uh, that can lead to, because it basically means that the person who can check your immunity status are the people who have power over you. And that runs the, the risks of employment, discrimination, um, and, you know, and these sets of exclusions. Because um, we have to remember that people's access to things like testing and documentation and whatever it is they need to get an immunity passport is going to vary greatly between different sectors of society. You know, people's access, physical access to testing facilities, groups who want to avoid any contact with the state or even with health services because they are scared of, say, their immigration status, they're scared of what will happen as a result of those sets of interactions. All these things are kind of um, will lead to far greater exclusions than they do at the moment because of these sets of immunity passports. This is quite extraordinary what you're describing because um, it takes the world of identity systems, which we've long known can be uh, incredibly coercive because of the, it's the relationship between the citizen and the state or the person and the state. And that person may not be a desirable, may not be a citizen, may not be the ideal citizen. And so it creates these power imbalances um, that you're describing. But it's also the world of public health where you want everybody to have access to something. But we all know it doesn't work out that way. And the public health world is full of inequalities. Um, and often it's about um, geography, class, income, and uh, how you're valued in society. But what you're also describing is an additional layer of, uh, of challenge, which is the digital ID world, which is um, painted, well, self-painted by the, its own proponents as being uh, progressive and empowering the individual and can find really cool technical capabilities to empower you while protect you from this onslaught of gross inequality and gross power imbalances. It's just not possible to reconcile, is it? It's absolutely right to think that you know this is an industry which has set itself apart in many ways from, say, the giant biometric database model of Arda in India and saying that this is an empowering technology. Um, but there's key aspects of that they've not really considered, not really thought about or engaged with over over the time when they're developing this kind of this technology they've never really looked at the reality there of what it means to be asked for that id to be to be asked for that information held in the id and i think there was i think that just reveals kind of a set of naiveties within the industry perhaps or um you know, that a path they've been moving down and basing their kind of assumptions upon doesn't reflect, you know, the realities of what, of how, of what it's like to ask, be asked for an ID, be asked for this kind of 
proof of something about you in these different in these different contexts. Um, but I mean, this has always been a problem with digital ID. It's just becoming more manifest because it becomes more apparent with the great societal risks emerging from multi passports that they're not providing these kind of sets of solutions. Um, so um, various kind of various kind of models here that we're talking about. Some are providing apps which you um, which you could you know upload your your passport or identity document to to prove who you are. Um, some um, other kind of um, people in the industry we're going to various kind of blockchain based self sovereign identity these kind of ideas as well. But overall, you know, they've not addressed what we needed them to address in the identity field. And I feel it just reveals kind of the feet of clay of this set of this industry um, that they have not been addressing the genuine problems with, um, with identity. They've been solving various technical issues, trying to avoid, you know, the model of having, say, a single giant biometric database living in some government department somewhere, but they've not reflected upon these other sets of problems and how we can solve those problems in order to, you know, in order to really empower us when we need to show who we are. Um, and it's an industry that I think sees this crisis as a massive opportunity for them. Um, with people doing more and more things online, then you know there's a growth in um, a growth in people using these kind of technologies, um, and we'd see that vastly accelerated through um, through any kind of immunity passports. And companies have been lobbying governments; they've been trying to get their solution um, solution adopted, and you know the possibilities there of them you know, increasing their market share of uh, of getting more users signed up to their product is huge for them because their aim is not just the immunity passport but then to leverage that into broader digital identity solutions um, which is something which um, to roll out, to look to roll out kind of a broader digital identity which we could use for uh, across society, for, for banking, for um, accessing healthcare, for education, for all these other uses to which um, people want to put um, digital identity. These are, these are enormous issues that need far broader discussion and engagement in society. What should be the consultation process for introducing these kind of systems for rolling them out more widely? You know, how do we access uh, government services in a way that's inclusive? All these kind of things are huge issues, and we need civil society engagement. We need discussion. We need to really critique the technology. Look at what the issues are. They're not something which should be introduced by the back door during a period of crisis, where you know. Um, governments are kind of desperate for solutions. Um, and this is something we've also seen in some of the discourse surrounding digital identity. This idea that, okay, we will, um, organizations pushing to use this crisis as an opportunity to introduce it more broadly, to cement the position of, um, of digital identity in our lives, in the financial sector, in other aspects of our lives. Um, but the challenge there is, you know, the weaknesses of this industry as it stands mean that this is not something that we should look to, you know, to look to make an essential part of our lives, at least not at the moment, until we've begun to address some of these major issues which the, uh, which the current pandemic has made clear. Do you think it's humanly possible for companies that are offering um, immunity passport solutions given the WHO have said they're inappropriate, probably in order to cement future market share, 
do you think those companies that are offering those solutions now, like, do you think any of them have any good intentions? Do you think it's humanly possible for them to be doing that ethically, despite the medical advice from the World Health Organization being, please do not do this thing? Well, many, I mean, many of their arguments is that uh, we're just suggesting this for when the science comes along, then it is ready to be deployed. Um, I don't particularly think that that's a strong argument because when it comes to identity systems, really form has to follow function. Um, and what uh, and what a immunity passport should look like in terms of what data should be held in it. Should it just simply be a yes, no immune to immunity or do we need more information to now enable, say, health um, health professionals to make a decision about whether someone's risky or not. Those sets of um, those sets of issues, really, we don't know the answer to that yet. We don't know what, if immunity exists exactly the details of what it looks like. How long will it last? Um, what other what other factors and issues are coming into play? Um, so designing designing a uh, system before you before you know the design brief then that is when we get into the area of you know, irresponsibility. Of, uh, that's where we get into the area of this just being so irresponsible to um, be pushing for this just at the moment. Um, I can see that companies want to get ahead of the game and do these and do these and get their foot in the door and to talk about creating a debate. Um, the challenge becomes, you know, We've got to stop that debate becoming self um, self fulfilling prophecy that these will eventually be introduced because governments have um, said, okay, we'll sign this contract now for when this happens, or we'll come to this, we'll agree to introduce these later down the line. So I think I think that's where I think that's where the industry has to perhaps just take a step back and say, okay, we have these technologies. Um, but we don't yet know whether these are one what, what aspects of this is going to be appropriate for this um, for this crisis, because one of the amazing coincidences is for every you know digital identity company, it happens to be their exact product which they claim is perfect <laughs> for this unprecedented crisis. So it's kind of um, what the chance of that happening that um, the proponents of the technologies it's always their one which will be the one that one that will work. And at the moment, we just don't know enough to make those kind of decisions. It's funny, uh, earlier we were commenting on how coronavirus, well, COVID-19 is a particularly um, challenging, I think I referred to it as a bastard when it comes to public health um, and possibly for immunity passports, <laughs> but I never thought that it would actually be good for industry. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate this. You're welcome. What's interesting is um, one of the issues that didn't come up in all of this discussion is uh, what does an immunity passport do to the world? That is, um, we, we again, we, we've all had those conversations. Oh, I would love to get tested to see if I've had it so I can go out and be free. We keep on imagining that um, if there is a class of people who are deemed uh, um, immune, that all of a sudden that will mean you can travel to the Riviera and you can do all the things you've always wanted to do. When in reality, if governments and uh, companies really had their way, you would be picking fruit. You would be uh, forced to go work in hospitals. You would be called to duty, essentially. And we haven't, um, and as long as the digital ID sector is in this selling this empowering message, and I'm sure their advertisements will include pictures of the Riviera. Um, the, we're still not clear what kind of world we're going to have until this result, this whole storm is over when we have the immunity passports. I think that's quite a hopeful view of immunity passports almost in that it's almost, I don't know, egalitarian. But I think if, if immunity passports happen, the first people that get immunity passports are going to be rich people who can afford private testing and no one's going to send them to work on a farm. Um, I think a world in which the response to getting immunity passports is public service of some kind is a, a comparatively nice one. And I don't 
unfortunately think it's the world we live in. I think people, it's going to be rich people and they're going to be chartering private planes to the Riviera. And to take that even further, um, then there's also fraud, which is uh, I am so wealthy that I can buy a fake test result. And that's that was the odd thing in all of our discussions um, and in all of what we're hearing from, whether it's uh, industry or governments, is that this will eventually be sorted. There will be something called immunity, whether it's through a vaccine or let's say it's just based on testing. Um, and then for the first time ever, there will be no fraud. That is, I can't buy a a, uh, a fake or a real passport that says that I'm immune when I'm not. But I really want to get on that plane to the Riviera. And those authorities won't let me off the plane unless I have that passport. This will just be another part of, of, of our society, which is dominated by those who can perpetrate fraud. But then again, um, what that leads to is an increasing spike of coronavirus cases. Like if that's one of this, the problems with immunity. And that's why we've talked so much about like the science around immunity and the why it's not there yet is because if you're issuing immunity passports, which with all of the benefits that implies and the kind of freedom to exist in the world that implies to people who have coronavirus or can still get coronavirus, you're reintroducing it to spread, which is why the WHO is saying, you know, what's more important than immunity passports, it's masks, it's washing your hands and it's social distancing. Because, you know, even if the science was there, assuming the antibody tests you know, aren't 100% perfect, potentially, there's always going to be a hidden risk there. Okay, well, with that happy note, (laughs) (laughs) thank you uh, for joining me, Caitlin. And um, thank you to all of our guests who uh, brought so much to this. And thank you uh, for listening. You can get involved with this topic by visiting our website. And of course, you can still sign up for mailings um, from PI around these issues. We have a specific mailing group for uh, news around COVID. Um, and you can join some of our campaigns that will we'll be running in the foreseeable future. If you uh, also want to, you can like and subscribe to this podcast on the various platforms you use. And it's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. So come to our website, sign up to mailings. You can also follow us on all these social medias. The music is courtesy of Sepia. <laughs>